The following presentation was recorded live at the 2014 National Bioneers Conference. To learn more about Bioneers programs and media products, visit www.bioneers.org. How's everybody doing today? Thanks. So we're going to get going in just a moment. We have a, there's some slight adapting, adapting happening. Our moderator, Kirsten Schwind from Bay Localize is actually stuck in, stuck in traffic in San Francisco. So she'll hopefully be joining us in about a half an hour. So we'll go ahead and get going. My name's Trayton Heckman, I'm the Executive Director of Daily X Organization, and I serve on the board as the Chair of Transition US. Uh, whoa, all right, sorry, use the other one. All right. Hello, that better? All right. Um, so anyways, Kirsten is gonna do our framing for the activity. The, the three of us were talking, myself, Kirsten, and Jesse, and we all are part of organizations, sustainability organizations, have been doing this work from between nine and maybe 17 years. And so there's a ton of amazing transition and sustainability groups around the US, around the world, and a lot of them are volunteer-based. Uh, and so we're just trying to think about our shared perspective. There's a lot of aspects of eco-governance, and we're really representing sort of small but staffed nonprofit organizations who've been doing this work for a while. Um, and, and so that, that's one particular perspective and what we're gonna be bringing today. And so as far as, you know, I was just kind of curious to think about um, what governance is. And I found a really interesting definition on the internet. And it said governance, governance refers to all processes of governing, whether undertaken by a government, market, or network, whether over a family, tribe, a formal or informal organization or territory, and whether through laws, norms, power, or language. So there's a lot of ways to look at governance. And just thinking, you know, as being pioneers, probably most of you know, thinking about where do the, you know, the terms ecology and economy come from. And so eco comes from the Greek oikos, which is about home. And so economy is management of the home. Ecology is the study of the relationships and the networks of home. And so that's some of our basis. And then as author Fritoff Capra talks about is that nature sustains the web of life by creating and nurturing communities. You know, so the, the nurturing relations, that ecology itself is the science of relationships. And he went on to further define sustainability as having two key elements. And that's coming from a place of eco-literacy and understanding of how nature functions, and then eco-design. How do we design our homes and gardens, our lives, our cities, our societies, based upon how nature, what nature's operating instructions are? And so we're gonna give a, just a bit of perspective from small nonprofit organizations. And we're gonna walk through and just sort of show some of the examples from our work and how it's evolved. Uh, myself and Jesse, and then hopefully Kirsten, depending on when she drops in. And then we're gonna do a bit of Q&A, that'll be the first part of things. And then for the last third, we're gonna do some breakout, um, and just to have some small group discussions. So did you wanna pop in? That sounds good. All right. Um, so hello, my name is um, Jesse Lerner, and I am the executive director at Sustain Dane, which is a nonprofit in Madison, Wisconsin. I've been um, the, ex I've been with the organization for the past seven years, 
and only in the past year have I become the executive director, so I've been part of this organization for over half of its existence. And is this mic okay? I, there's a lot of echo up front, but how is it in the audience? Good? Fantastic. So before I launch in, I'd love to get a sense of who our audience is. So by show of hands, who works in the government arena? Cool. Um, do we have any nonprofiters? Okay. What about education? Um, for profit? One hand. Um, any volunteers? There was a lot of hands that were not raised. So Radical. the radicals, <laughs> activists, media. media. Wonderful. Well, regardless of when you raised your hand, this panel is really going to be relevant to all of you. Um, we're really coming at it from this grassroots um, perspective that does engage multiple sectors of society. So I guess I'll go ahead and get started. Um, we all have our different definitions of sustainability. And at Sustain Dane, we see sustainability as a hierarchy. Pictured here, you may have seen this image of circles before, where a strong economy, a just society, and a healthy planet are all wholly interdependent systems. And we can't have, we, we have to have them all. We can't just have one of them. And at Sustain Dane, we work with individuals wherever they are at. There we go. I want to keep on this one. Be it at home, at school, at work, or in neighborhoods, to become sustainability champions and inspire their own networks of friends and family to act. So at Sustain Dane, our mantra is not do less bad, but do differently. And as Trayson said, we are here to talk about eco-governance. And I'm going to be talking about eco-municipalities, which can support on-the-ground work. So what is an eco-municipality? It's hard to say. Um, but what it is, is it's a city, a town, or a region that has a governing body that actively prioritizes the long-term health of ecosystems, economies, and communities in a finite world. We all know we have a finite world, and eco-municipalities recognize that fact. So two key aspects of this model are, one, adopting a sustainability framework as a guide, and two, being highly participatory in the decision-making process. So I shared that eco-municipalities must adopt a sustainability framework. The natural step, some of you may be familiar with this framework, is the framework that the city of Madison, where our nonprofit um, is home to, approved. And the natural step is a model that can be applied to groups of people, be it a business, a city, or a community group. And I want to highlight key three very high-level aspects about this framework. One, it's a broad systemic lens that is based in scientific law. And that's really important, it's based in scientific law. Two, it meshes really, really well with people who have analytical ways of thinking. And it allows us to envision a thriving future that is not bound by the constraints of today. And so that is the natural step summed up in 10 seconds. Um, it can be a 45-minute presentation. So how did Madison get involved with the movement of eco-municipalities? 
So we're going to time travel back to the 80s in Sweden, where we meet Carl Henrik Robert, who is a cancer scientist. Has anyone heard of Carl Henrik Robert? He's a really cool guy if you want to look him up later. Um, who developed the natural step out of a need to have a roadmap for sustainability. And at the same time, Torbjorn Lati was developing an approach for governments to better prioritize environmental and social health. So through the marriage of their work of Torbjorn and Carl, we see the emergence of the first eco-municipality in Overtoneo. And as an eco-municipality, Overtoneo was able to reinvest in its people and reimagine its natural resource use. And pulling itself, it was really transitioning this city out of economic stagnation. And this success led to the creation of 70 cities across Sweden that also went ahead and adopted the natural step as a guiding framework, becoming an eco-municipality, including the city um, capital, or the, the country's capital, Stockholm. So if you fast forward to the late 90s, when I was in middle school, and a group of Midwestern thought leaders who took a study trip to Sweden. Grant Abert, pictured on the right, was one of the key individuals in this trip. And he visited many of the 70 eco-municipalities in Sweden and was greatly inspired from the Swedish experience and what he learned from Torbjörn Latte, who is pictured on the left. And this was a serious pivot point. And if Grant is in the audience, I know he comes to Bioneers regularly. Um, thank you for going to Sweden. So when he returned back to Madison, he connected with other interested business and community thought leaders um, in Madison, including the founders of our would-be, of, of our future nonprofit, Sustained Dane. And they brought this framework and knowledge into the community through hundreds and hundreds of discussion circles, discussion groups, which were focusing on the theory and implementation of the natural step. And this wasn't just happening in Madison. These community study circles were happening across the entire state of Wisconsin. And they were led by individuals who had gone on the same study trip to Sweden with Grant. And these study circles and these hundreds of individuals engaging were providing our community with a common language and shared understanding of what sustainability means and how you can take action with it. And the momentum built over these next five years prompted Sustained Dane to organize another study trip to Sweden um, where, they, where we brought 30 community leaders to witness firsthand what eco-municipalities could look like and um, how they can co-create them in their own communities back in the States. So since 2005, over 30 municipalities in the state of Wisconsin passed a government resolution to adopt the natural step, pictured there. Um, and this was recognizing the importance of social and environmental impacts in decision making. And these eco-municipalities did not just pop up in a vacuum. You know, they, they created an informal network, and Sustained Dane was part of that, to share the practices, challenges, tips, and tricks that are so helpful when you're adopting something new. And this created an incredibly supportive social network to amplify and replicate their respective efforts. 
So I'm gonna go ahead and zoom into the city of Madison as a concrete way to showcase the why and how of an eco-municipality. So municipal governments are both a consumer and a steward of our natural resources. And they can have significant spheres of influence in which they can directly impact. So as an example, you know, the city of Madison has a population of a quarter million people and uses natural resources to serve its citizens. For instance, the city manages over 800 miles of streets and collects over 60,000 tons of garbage every year. And the choices that governments make regarding its footprint can either lead by example or create more problems. And Madison chose the former. And as I shared, Sustain Dane was hosting these study, study circles across the community um, starting in the late 90s. And these efforts had inspired the city of Madison to take a pro-sustainability stance. They developed a city committee to dive into sustainability and energy use and draft a formal sustainability plan. So through this work in 2005, the city of Madison adopted the Natural Step Framework to become the second eco-municipality in the state of Wisconsin. And in partnership with 1,000 Friends and UW Extensions and city officials, Sustain Dane helped train over 25 department heads across the city and an additional 200 employees in the Natural Step. Again, giving this common language and framework in which to make decisions. So sustainability was no longer an add-on, it was a lens. There are two significant milestones that I would like to highlight, call out, that directly resulted from Madison's adoption of the natural step and becoming an eco-municipality. First, um, we now have a dedicated city sustainability manager position whose primary role is to oversee the expansion and implementation of natural resource reduction within the city. And second, the city earmarked and awarded funds for projects that satisfy the goals of the city's second sustainability plan. These are just two of countless actions. If those are details you are interested in, we can definitely talk after. Um, so I've shared some of the significant successes that can happen from eco-governance, but what do you think some of the roadblocks can be um, when you're engaging in the world of eco-governance? So in Madison, we have both a city and a county, and this is our county pictured up on the screen, that have taken formal action to become an eco-municipality, formal action to recognize the importance of environmental and social implications of decisions. And within their own jurisdictions, we're seeing awesome work. Um, yet, even with these strides, we still experience clear challenges to intermunicipal collaboration on some of this deeper socio-environmental efforts, like public transport, for example. And one of the reasons this may be happening could be due to geographic diversity. Madison is urban, Dane County is rural, and this leads to um, a huge variety and often mismatched needs and perspectives. So this is why it's even more important from my perspective to have nonprofit partnerships who can bring these different entities together around a common vision. So one of Sustain Dane's core pillars is its alignment, and we're actively working to establish common ground between all of our partners. So what's special about the eco-municipality movement is it is designed to provide the space and framework to tackle challenges of alignments. 
For eco-municipalities to thrive, there must be a highly collaborative public-private partnership and an intentional choice um, for the government not to work in isolation. So for the past decade, Sustained Dane has and continues to complement and broaden action-oriented programming that is grounded in the natural step. And one of our current programs, the Empower Champion Business Program, demonstrates this. So Empower is a one-year, fully customizable, cohort-based program that moves organizations from intention to action. Um, by developing and enhancing cross-departmental green teams, strategic groups of people within a company that come up with creative, easy-to-implement solutions that have a business case for action and measurable results. So since 2009, you can see the variety of businesses we've worked with. Each color is a different year. Um, we've worked with over 70 area businesses, ranging in size from 4 to 4,000 employees and across industry sector. And these businesses have collectively implemented over 325 sustainability projects, which translates to a saving of over 26,000 tons of carbon dioxide annually and over $1.6 million in avoided costs. So that's like taking over 5,100 cars off the road every year. So right now, um, we're working with Western Tech in the city of La Crosse, which is another municipality in Wisconsin um, that adopted the natural step and became an eco-municipality to replicate the Empower Champion business program. And I imagine that many of us in this room recognize the importance of replicating things that work. It's one of the reasons we all come here, learn about new things. And Empower works. So if you're in a community that sees business engagement as an opportunity, I'd love to have a conversation with you before the weekend ends. As we've seen in Wisconsin, a network of eco-municipalities creates a culture of sustainability. And we're seeing that same alignment with our business community and with La Crosse. So we took this work with the business community a step further through the creation of a local sustainable business network this network provides the spheres for broader engagement and action driven by its members. And in just two years, SBN has expanded to almost 70 organizations, including the city of Madison, keeping our eco-municipality at the table. In 2009, we adopted the Empower Green Team approach for the school district. And this started with a high-level study circle um, consisting with the mayor, the superintendent, and our former executive director at the time. And these three leaders also saw that the school district, like a city government, could be stewards of the environment. After all, the district serves 27,000 students in 48 schools with over 4,000 employees. It's a lot of people. And um, now Sustained Dane partners with, over, with four other nonprofits to bring on the ground green teamwork to teachers, parents, and students to build and enhance outdoor classrooms, which you can see there. So we're staying creative with our work. Our newest program, SMART, and our moderators here, Sustainability plus Madison plus Art, brings city officials, neighbors, and businesses to the same table to envision a healthier, more vibrant future. So we designed this program with the strengths of the natural step in mind 
by putting visioning, co-creation, and community input at its core. We deliberately aligned SMART with stated goals in the city's sustainability plan, which further enhances the eco-municipality movement. And all of our program work accumulates at our annual conference, Badger Bioneers, which is one of the 17 satellite conferences um, around the country. And this full-day event really highlights the fact that the local work on the ground is not in isolation. It's part of this bigger global movement. Um, so in nearly all of our work on the ground facilitating sustainability actions, the city of Madison or the Dane, or Dane, Dane County is a partner. And our experience, as yours maybe as well, I know yours is, that um, working with people and complex systems has obstacles. But for us and 30 other communities in Wisconsin, the adoption of the natural step to form those eco-municipalities removes many barriers in creating public-private partnerships and accelerates the impact of our work. And I want to just leave you with some concrete next steps if you are interested in taking this eco-municipality model back to your community. Um, all of these points are important, but the one in red, adopt a guiding principle or framework for sustainability, I want to call it out because of the value it has had for our community. Um, this step really helps institutionalize this work so that sustainability can still be a core when political leadership shifts, which inevitably it does. Um, and this, I'm happy to give you the link to that, where that document came from. And with that, there's my contact and looking forward to discussing with the rest of you more. Thanks. Thank you so much, Jesse. And we're so lucky to have Jesse here all the way from Madison. Yeah, it's a long way to come. And uh, did you have a chance to introduce yourself? We did. We did. Okay, yeah. good, good. I'm Kristen Schwinn. I'm the moderator. I really apologize for walking in a bit late. I'm stuck in the traffic jam in San Francisco. But it's absolutely wonderful to be here with this, uh, map, uh, this uh, wonderful panel on eco-governance. And um, in a moment, we'll also hear from uh, Trayton Heckman here. Uh, a number of you may already know Trayton, especially if you live in Sonoma County, where he is a real stalwart of the sustainability movement there. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit for just a moment with some framing question, um, issues around, uh, or thoughts, around uh, eco-governance. Why is it important? What are, you know, why, why even think in terms of scale and uh, representation in, in governance? Um, so I work for an organization called Bay Localize, and so we think in terms of you know, what does it mean to have local systems, at what scale does it make sense to govern our ecosystems? And it's some, and some, it really depends on what system we're looking at. Watersheds are one of the ones that are easier to define, right? It's, it's like a bathtub. Uh, you, if you pour a little bit of water at the top of a mountain, you watch which way it runs down. If it runs toward you, you're, that's in the watershed you're in. If you look around the highest places around you, that's how you identify your watershed. It's pretty easy to do that. But then the other sorts of ecological systems are a little harder to, to define. A food shed, an air shed, an energy shed. These things are kind of flexible and, and overlapping. Um, certainly a shed or housing shed, when you look at the major sort of systems that we need to meet our human rights um, in terms of uh, the ways that human systems interact with natural systems, we look at using natural systems to get our food, our water, our energy, our housing, 
even our transportation, our jobs and economy, these are all ways that human systems mesh with ecological systems. At what scale does it make sense to govern these systems in ways that are in harmony with the natural systems we draw from, from resources? And in what sort of representation will best facilitate the feedback loops, meaning that the people who will be most impacted are the one, people who are making the most decisions or people who see the impacts, if the impacts are gonna be in nature. And also, how do we guarantee representation for nature through nature's rights? All of these are some of the juicy questions we think about in terms of eco-governance, especially scale and representation. So those are some of the ongoing themes we'll, we'll talk about in our discussion today. Um, let's see. Uh, and when we also look at um, jurisdiction of scale, people are a part of ecologies also um, and, and shape our ecologies in super dramatic ways. And, and we're, we're clever little monkeys. We're, human, we're, we're, we're animals also. It's, it, I think it's a bit of a false divide to think of, of humans as not a part of the animal kingdom. And so in that way, we also can look at cultural um, boundaries and divides also. Like at what scale does it make sense to do governance in a way that can captures the cultures um, that are within the, those um, jurisdictions as well. Um, so that's another a theme we'll be looking at today in terms of how do we make sure that different ethnicities, different backgrounds, different um, levels of economic um, prosperity are represented well. Um, and we know right now that in the political system in the United States that um, you know, the uh, Occupy movement made it really clear that a lot of political systems are run by the 1%. And so when we look at governance, the feedback loops aren't working for the 99%. And so that's another um, way we need to start thinking about eco-governance um, along with the social governance in, the, in these big questions. I'll just say a little tiny bit about uh, my work at Bay Localize as my co-panelists invited me to do so, and then we'll hear from Trayden. Uh, after that, we'll have a few, uh, uh, a little question a uh, question answer period with the audience, and then we're going to do something which is really exciting: break out. And since we have movable chairs here in this room, that's um, something we can actually do. We'll break out in three groups um, with uh, each of us, and we'll have an in-depth discussion there. So we won't just all be listening to talking heads today. So I'll just give a couple of examples of how my organization, Bay Localized, looks at this question of eco-governance. Uh, we were founded about 10 years ago. Our office is in Oakland. We work throughout the nine-county Bay Area and, and look at this question of how can cities, especially urban areas, be more self-reliant in meeting our basic needs? And also, how can we greatly reduce our reliance on fossil fuels and bring our ecological systems back in harmony with our human systems to meet our basic human rights? Um, and so, to that end, uh, we've looked at our energy sheds of, of the, at the scales of cities and counties and, and the practical ways that we bring those uh, um, scale of governance um, you know, back to that level uh, through a program called Community Choice Energy. Um, who here lives in Marin County? In Marin County residents? Okay, well, you would be familiar with a program called um, a Marine Clean Energy, uh, which is the first community choice energy program in California. So go Marin County for pioneering that. And that gives uh, residents in Marin County a choice of being able to buy their electricity from 
The uh, investor-owned utility, basically a, a corporate utility, um, which is P uh, Pacific Gas and Electric, PG&E, here in Northern California, or from the county itself. And then the, the county can decide what it wants its energy mix to look like. And now Sonoma County, where Trayton is from, is taking that one step farther and investing the money in local energy sources, um, which is very exciting. And in the East Bay, where we're based, we're trying to take that even one step further and making uh, energy systems a real economic driver for jobs through investing in a lot of um, local resources that we have, namely a lot of wind resources in the Altamont Pass and uh, a lot of uh, warehouses that we can cover with solar as well. Um, so that's one example. Um, in terms of uh, food systems, we did a study once of uh, mapping out a quarter square mile of rooftops in Oakland and calculating how much food, water, and energy could be produced on that. How self-sufficient could that area be? And it, it, we didn't figure they could be completely self-sufficient, but the results were startlingly, high, startlingly higher than anyone predicted. <laughs> Yeah, and certainly a lot of places around the world are ahead of us in many of these things. Well, these are common sense permaculture type you know, principles. Um, and uh, then in terms of the idea of representation, when we look at climate change, uh, we see that there are gross inequities, that the people who are gonna be most impacted by climate change aren't the f people who are generally causing the problem. Um, that's true at the international scale, and it's also true at the local scale as well. Um, and so uh, throughout the Bay Area, we've been organizing a group called the Resilient Communities Initiative, which is a coalition of social justice organizations based in low-income communities of color that are really tracking where are the decisions being made on climate adaptation policies, trying to get to those tables, trying to influence how monies are being spent, how the, how the decisions are being made, who is at, you know, who's on the steering committees, who's on the councils, who, um, and then how the grant criteria are set up also to make sure that the folks who are being most impacted by the impacts of climate change are actually making the decisions about how we will prepare for it. Uh, so those are some examples of uh, how we're working on appropriate levels of governance on, um, for eco-governance. Um, I'm very happy now to pass the microphone on to my colleague, Trayton. Um, yeah, so Trayton uh, founded Daily Acts, what was it, about 10 years ago? 13, 13 my goodness. That's yeah, that's wonderful, yeah. So Daily Acts is a fabulous organization based in Sonoma County. And they're um, really based on this idea that you can do, you can take an action every day. Anybody can do this. It's you know, one easy action every day and it really adds up. And so they've been fabulous at organizing mass gardening days and things like that and spreading that out beyond Sonoma County to really, um, um, how, how large was the reach of your, of your last big gardening action day? Over 16,000. Wow, we're 16,000 actions. So anyway, anyway um, Trayden, I'm really happy to introduce Trayden, and so here you go. Hello again, everybody. Um, so first I wanna start out with a thing that we often do. It's kind of an interesting edge since we work with a lot of municipalities of trying to stay true to who we are as an organization, and I think that's important for all of us. Of We try and help people find and live their voice, which is a very scary thing to do as a person, and then you figure out sort of, you know, Nonprofits that do sustainability often think and act differently than big government and entities. So anyways, I want you all to put your feet on the ground, nice and flat and parallel and sit upright. You wanna feel like your spine is light and aligned and like it's hanging from a golden thread. 
And just close your eyes and take a nice little breath. To breathe together is to conspire, literally. And uh, that's an important part, I think. Good eco-governance is, governance is conspiring together. Now gently open your eyes. Then rub your hands together. And this is pretty safe at Bioneers, I think. But just listen to the sound of everybody's hands rubbing together. Like we often talk about in the Transition Town movement, heads, hearts, and hands aligned in acts of care and celebration. Now give a little shake, because there's a lot that sticks to us that is sometimes pretty painful. So it's good to shake, off, shake the dust off your shine periodically. So um, always good to breathe together. And I just want to start off really briefly. Um, a couple of my inspirations are you all in this, this community of pioneers that really kind of cracked open my heart and my mind to, to do this work. Um, and just to surround myself with more good pioneers, the selfish altruism of being around amazing people doing amazing things. But also 13 years ago today, um, I, on very short notice, I lost my mother to part of a broken world, a broken medical system, and, and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, it's often the case is that combination of inspiration and urgency, um, heartbreak and, and heart opening and heartwarming. Um, you know, and so I just want to, you know, honor pioneers and, and honor my mother for both bringing me into the world and for inspiring me to try and do things differently. Um, and to give gratitude for, for, like I said, for her and pioneers and all of you. Um, so I want to start, start off with three simple quotes that I think kind of frame and get to the essence of some of our thinking about things. And the first is from Confucius, who said, to put the world in order, we must first put the nation in order. To put the nation in order, we must first put the family in order. To put the family in order, we must first cultivate our personal life. And to cultivate our personal life, we must first set our hearts right. And Nina spoke to that beautifully this morning. And then a quote by Margaret Wheatley, who said, rather than worry about critical mass, our work is to foster critical connections. We don't need to convince large numbers of people to change. Instead, we need to connect with kindred spirits. And through these relationships, we will develop the new knowledge, practices, courage, and commitment that lead to broad-based change. Um, and then the third quote came from Clarissa Pinkoli's Estes, who I read shortly after 9-11, a month before my mom passed, that personal national crisis, which moved things forward, um, is ours is not the task to fix the entire world at once, but to stretch out and mend the part that is within our reach, like Nina spoke about this morning. And one of the most calming and powerful things we could do in a stormy world is to stand up and show your soul, because soul on deck shines like golden dark times, and struggling souls catch light from others who are fully lit and willing to share it. And though these things are probably more bioneers-esque than you think of what may fly in government speak, I think they get to an essence of something and they actually, that can ripple through government work. Um, and so I'm gonna just show some examples of some of our story and what we've been able to do. And when I say our story, Daily Acts is a small grassroots organization with amazing staff and amazing volunteers like Leslie and others and a lot of great partners. And so it's not really worse a small player in it. We help catalyze and inspire and organize but it's really a much larger community that makes anything happen that you're gonna see. Um, and so, you know, the idea of can we change the world in a garden, which is kind of provocative, and that's where, that's where we come from, by thinking like a garden and acting like a garden and organizing like a garden and supporting policies at our, our municipalities that do the same. 
and so for us, it comes back to these three core connections that humans have always used to adapt and thrive in challenging times. And it's reconnecting to your inspiration and your power and reconnecting to community and reconnecting to nature. And now, as we all know, it's really about regenerating those things. So how can we live our inspiration in a way that regenerates and nurtures community and nature? And so Daily Acts, just a brief, on, we're a 13-year-old organization, as Kristen said, in Sonoma County, California. Um, and we do, you know, we teach people about how to grow food and keep bees and do rainwater and do gray water, you know, the basics of personal leadership, Gandhi and Be the Change, and local self-reliance. And looking at this thinking that in order to build community resilience, you know, to, to what's going on, we have to build personal resilience and home-scale neighborhood resilience, that's actually a cornerstone of community resilience, is our ability to meet our own needs and to build trust and relationships in our neighborhoods and to get engaged so we could have local power in our cities and in our counties and local food and local um, water care and things like that. And so we teach people about these things. We do tours of the incredible models working around us. Just like Jesse said, with their organization in part getting inspired by an eco-municipality tour they went on, that's where we started, by doing tours of showing people, saying, look at the amazing work being done. You could smell it, you could touch it, you could taste it. This is the voice and the face of the healthy, just, reverent, resilient world being born, right? You know, these farmers and these gardeners and these green business people and these, these feisty soccer moms who are doing amazing things in their schools. Um, and so we tour people around to those things. Then we start doing skill building workshops. And then we get people together and we transform things. We also do a lot of work with cities. About a third of our budget comes from city contracts with local municipalities in Sonoma County and the water agency. Um, so so a, a chunk of our funding and our work is, is doing city-based programs. And then we do a lot to try and get in the media, get these voices and faces in the story to, to ripple from one to many and many to millions. Um, and we do also a lot of work at the alliance level action, education, and alliances, formal and informal. We all have our organizations, but we all do a lot of work outside of our four walls. And so we're a founding member of the Sonoma County Food System Alliance, and we work with the Gray Water and Rainwater Working Group. And so just trying to be a part of these incredible networks, um, moving things forward. And so for us, it's you know kind of be the model, start at home, and this is the type of stuff we try and teach. Anybody here read Toby Hemingway's book, Guy's Garden? Home scale permaculture book, highly recommend you read it, Nature's Operating Instructions. So anyways, Entity talks about this point when an ecological garden goes pop, and it's able to sift, sort, and transform any drop of water, any scrap of carbon, any ray of sunshine that comes into it, into a thriving ecosystem of animals and plants and critters and more conscious human stewards. And so the elements that help that garden go pop that we organize and teach around are building healthy soil, this precious thin skin of topsoil that makes life on this planet flourish. Um, and planting plenty and diversely. This is a neighbor, Roger, who's turning one apple tree into 10 apple trees by doing peace root grafting, putting little grafts on, and we have trees growing. This is a living system in a friend's backyard treating black water. Um, you know, we could do these things at the home scale and the, the ecological design thinking we could learn in our homes and our gardens and our balconies and our rentals own oh, doesn't matter. That can be applied at scale. Those thinking principles can be applied at, at much larger scales. Building and retrofitting green and natural. Um, 
caring for more critters. You have bees and chickens and goats and even dragonflies and kitties. We're often thinking in terms of from a permaculture lens, ecological design, how can we grow more Fs, more food, more fuel, more fodder, more fun, more fecundity, more pharmaceuticals, front yard pharmaceuticals, more feline felicity, right? So our kitties are happy. Um, you know, so, and more friends, of course. And then treasuring every drop of water with rainwater catchment and gray water recycling. This is another friend's backyard, this bioswale. And the city was running, they had a big pipe running under his backyard, and it was taking all the way, all the rainwater from an above apartment complex behind his property, taking it away, right? But there is no way in a cyclic existence. So he talked to the city, he said, hey, could I put in a gate valve? And now he's sinking hundreds of thousands of gallons of water. Instead of going under his property, it's going through a, a channel of swales and following like a river pattern and through ponds and it's sinking that water in his backyard and growing this, this ecological food forest, right? Uh, it's an edible ecosystem. And so treasuring every drop of water and those are the four core elements, um, you know, building soil and planting plenty and diversely and working with beneficial critters and treasuring and recycling water and of course having more conscious human stewards. And so once you do these things, then the garden starts to go pop. And we could grow gardens that use 80, 90% less resources and are radically more rich and regenerative. And they're growing food and medicine and habitat and all these sort of things. Um, and so these are some model gardens that we've helped install. Uh, this is a rental unit around the corner from our house that it went from an empty lot to now there's food growing over the fences into neighbor's yard and they propagate and they give plants away and there's a rental unit next to them that the lady was going to rent it and she was just going to round up everything you know put a bunch of chemicals on and then a person renting this place hey don't worry we'll come over and we'll sheet mulch it we'll build soil the way nature does and get rid of those weeds and she's sort of confused because she's like you mean you're just going to come over and give free labor to my rental unit and then they start doing this and helping other neighbors transform their yards and lawns and inspire them to do that and building community along the way. Another friend's landscape, exact same angle a few years apart from sort of devoid landscape to lush, vital, fecund system where they teach kids about food sheds and fiber sheds and doing plant dyes and making ice cream in the garden. And so, you know, that's how we start to get these houses to go pop and how we sort of look at our, our program as a set of ecosystem, a successional pattern from a tour to a workshop to a mobilization. Um, and so then we walked across the street at our place and we were talking with the city of Petaluma that we worked with. I said, Dave, we need to plant a food forest across the street at the, the Boys and Girls Center. He's like, what's a food forest? And so I explained it to them, you know, and they're just about saving water. And, you know, we're in, a, we're in a pretty bad drought in California. And in a lot of places, state best practices rip out the turf and take it away. And it goes to the landfill where it becomes 23 times the greenhouse gas emissions. You're saving water, but you're exporting your topsoil. And it's creating more problems. Instead of sheet mulching it in place, this ecological technique of building soil the way nature does, layering down sheets of cardboard and paper and old shirts, and then compost, and just building soil the way nature does. So we got 150 volunteers to come out over three days, and we were like, sweet, we're gonna handle the water conservation problem. Drop water use 80%. And we're gonna grow food and medicine, even though that's not in the department, and we'll handle stormwater. Years later now, there's new state stormwater requirements that the cities have to save stormwater and do certain types of education. They have no more money to do it with, right? So they're kind of like, great, new regulations, no more money. 
five years ago, we'll address stormwater as well. We'll dig rain gardens and swales. And addressing all these benefits, we'll put in Cobb benches. Now there's a new organization that lives there, and they serve 300 at-risk youth. So we'll start doing educational programming, teaching the kids about growing healthy food. And so the guy we work with, his boss comes by on the weekend. It's 85 degrees out. People are digging clay, and they're laughing, and they're having fun. He has kids, and he's kind of confused. And he's like, what's happening here? You're, <laughs> it's really hot out, and you're digging clay, but you look like you're having fun, and you're saving us water, and you're saving us money, and you're strengthening the, the fiber of our community. Um, and so then we went next door to our other neighbors, Lori and Murray's. Um, let's see if this will work. And we mobilized 30 volunteers in a day, and we got a bunch of free plants and free compost and mulch and all sorts of things, and we did a rapid transformation of their garden. And Lori and Murray talked about how this has actually changed their values. It's changed the way they eat. Murray talked about how it felt like um, the day they got married. You know, it was a celebration of community, recycled cardboard, integrate their, storm, their uh, rainwater runoff from the roof to feed the blueberries. Uh, and we just took a bunch of problems, which is more than I can go into now, and turned into solution, solution, solution. And this is the kind of thing. And since then, now, they used to always sit behind that beautiful apple tree, and people would walk by. And because I live in the neighborhood, and this is happening in a lot of other neighborhoods, every single person that walks by, the garden's way more beautiful than this now. And they, they stop and engage them, and they talk, and they're connecting, and they ask questions. So it's this incredible source of community building, as well as saving and recycling a lot of resources. So then we get the chance to take it to City Hall with a couple partner organizations, and 250 of us get together and we transform City Hall landscape in a day and put in community garden beds and Chilean guava berries and kiwis and artichokes and rainwater catchment tanks, save the city $60,000 on the spot, save a million gallons of water a year, the entrance to our halls of power. We just did that again at Sebastopol City Hall with a bunch of amazing volunteers a few months ago. Um, and so growing food for folks, Petaluma Bounty, one of the organizations serving underserved community, getting food in folks' hands who need healthy food. Um, and so this starts to pop all around the community. And, and every time you do one of these gardens, two or three neighbors get interest, and they want to do it as well. And even better, by doing this, City of Petaluma, we worked with them, and they, had, they don't recommend ripping out the turf. They have their mulch madness program that they based around the first two sheet mulches we did together. And so since then, they've given out free resources from local companies, local recycled wood chips, local recycled cardboard, uh, to sheet mulch over 500 lawns, which saves the city 22 million gallons of water a year. And now more citizens are asking for it, and more cities are doing it. It's being looked at as a regional model in the East Bay and other places. Um, and the guy who ran that program will be speaking at an event of ours coming up. And so we start to grow a sheet mulching movement. And then we start to create people-powered parks um, from at libraries and other places. And so like that's sheet mulching and food forcing, mimicking how nature does things. Can we do that with your laundry water? This is a constructed wetland gray water system mimicking a wetland ecology. It was the first permitted one in Sonoma County, which got us at the table, helped facilitating a group working with other partners that played a small hand in changing the California state gray water policy. Um, and so, so from there, and then going back and doing one system, then five, then 13, then doing the 100 gray water system challenge, and then going, okay, well, let's, let's do, you know, plant 350 gardens in a weekend, getting a bunch of schools and churches and businesses and partners together. And collectively, we registered over 600, um, 600 gardens. The next year, 1,000 home and garden actions. The next year, double again. Last year, over 3,500 actions. 
projects and pledges, schools, churches, cities, neighborhoods, rose for the hungry. Um, and then this last year, which Kirsten and Bay Localized played a role in, you know, we actually, and a lot of this again comes through partnerships with a lot of different entities. Um, getting results is really vital. Sharing the story. Once you start doing these things, you're in the media a lot and you're spreading the word. And so connecting and collaborating. So a lot of organizations started grabbing the challenge and morphing it in their communities. And Sustainable Contra Costa did it and the Transition Town US did it. Um, and so this last year we came together and we, we rebranded the Home and Garden Challenge, the Community Resilience Challenge. And to, to have local autonomy where this is happening all over, but shared vision, shared language, measurable results. And so collectively, we, as Kirsten mentioned, we mobilized over 16,000 actions to grow food and save water and build community. Um, and again, not DLX, a lot of different organizations were being a part of it. And this is a challenge we, you know, I'll mention later, but this is something any community in the U.S. could take part in. We have the tools, we have the resource, we have the website info to do it. Um, and so I just want to tell one brief story before I close. This is one of 7,000 local actions this year. Nancy and Jim Haig's house, their children run Weaving Earth who are part of this. And so they heard one of our volunteers telling the story about how since she did this front yard garden and did her gray water system, um, it's helped change her life and she's met more neighbors in a year of doing it than in two decades of living in her house. And so Nancy heard that and it kind of touched her and they're like, yes, that's what we need to do. It's not just resource savings, it's connection, it's relationships. And so this year as a part of the challenge, they transformed that chunk of lawn um, and they're, you know, this is a marching band. And so now kids come up in the neighborhood and they get a book out of the free library in their front yard. And then they sit there and they're reading the book and they're picking strawberries. And the lawn that was a lawn behind them is now this beautiful landscape saving 15,000 gallons of water a month. If you stacked five gallon buckets, 3,000 them up, that's a month's worth of their water. It's almost three times the height of the Empire State Building. One lawn. Even better, they met more neighbors in three months since they've done this and in three decades of living in this house. Um, and then other neighbors are using this program, the free resources the cities provide. Uh, and so it, it functions at a lot of level and the cities are seeing and they're getting the impacts and they're wanting more of it. They wanna partner with local organizations in local places. Um, and so I know that was a lot really quickly. Um, and so just, you know, kind of having fun with it, even when working with cities, the idea of practicing sustainable hedonism, that we can have an amazing time, we could save a ton of resources, we could build community, we could grow healthy food, we could help change the places where we live, from neighborhoods to local policies to state policies, and we could do that together. All right. <laughs> so that's it. So it's fun to listen to Trayvon, he's such a poet. Great. Um, and so we have some really wonderful examples here from the eco-municipality um, to kind of the daily acts. So actually Trayvon does more with the municipalities than he led on also. There's certainly a, a policy angle there as well. Um, uh, any uh, sort of clarifying questions from the audience before we do our breakout groups? Go ahead, uh, the lady in the second row here. You asked about the natural step framework. So the, I'm trying to figure out how to do this quickly. Um, is that something everyone in the audience wants to know? Okay, cool. <laughs> so the natural step is a framework and there's these four systems conditions. 
recognizing that what you take out of the earth is limited. There's only limited minerals and materials in the earth. Um, what we put into the atmosphere, there's a limit into what the atmosphere can hold. So burning fossil fuels, for example. Um, there is a limit to the amount of physical degradation that we can do on the earth. So um, garbage, landfills, there's a physical limit to that. And then the last is the recognition that there is um, people need to meet their needs fairly and justly. So you've got these three very physical um, laws of nature and then this recognition of human aspect, which is one of the beautiful aspects of sustainable systems is that intersection of people with the environment. And um, so those four kind of systems conditions you think about in every time you're looking to make a decision. And at one point I had put um, kind of this ABCD crazy diagram up there, but to sum that up quickly, when we're, when we're visioning, you know, so often in our world we're forecasting and just kind of going with the status quo. So if these are the steps we're taking, this is the trend. And recognizing we don't have to be limited by what the trend is, what do we want? in the future, and let's backcast what are the steps we have to get there to get to the future we want, having those considera considerations of living in a finite world. So that's the natural step, quickly. Great. Yeah. And this gentleman in the front row had a question. Yeah. Um, your name is Jesse from Madison? Yes. And in the process of looking at Sweden, if you look at, they have a wall there called Eden Bear. Uh, requires the utilities to pay the homeowners, I think people three cents a kilowatt hour for harvesting solar energy and keeping it on the grid. Decentralized energy, local community solar systems. Mm -hmm. Did you look at that and have you tried to incorporate it in Madison? Germany has got it for the whole country. I'm not sure if people are following the news in the utility world in Wisconsin right now, but we're actually. Um, there's, there's a lot going on at the moment from the complexity of the utilities either making it easier to decentralize or not. And that's actually up for debate at the PSC, the Public Service Commission, at this moment. There was a bunch of hearings last week. So that is an incredibly um, relevant question. Um, as far as from Sweden, that were, I, I did not personally go. I wish I would have. It would have been lovely. I hope to go someday soon. Um, from what I hear on those stories, the energy consumption and the recognition of decentralization was huge. Some of the um, one of some of the huge inspirations. There's there's this great example of like um, a McDonald's and a car park and like three or four other businesses that were grouped together so that as as those four businesses, um, one's waste fueled another's energy and so really mimicking those natural systems and so I'm not sure if that's exactly what you're referring to but those types of um, bringing energy together was a huge inspiration for a lot of the things that happened back home. It allows them to make money. Mm -hmm. They're making billions of dollars selling solar energy. 
That's amazing. I hope we get there in Wisconsin. Right, it's so true, yeah. yeah. One thing we found in our energy advocacy work, I forgot to mention that Bay Localized hosts the Local Clean Energy Alliance, which is Northern California's largest clean energy advocacy alliance. Um, and one of the reasons we promote community choice energy is that it gives municipalities the power to pass policies such as feed-in tariffs. So I believe Marin County actually has a feed-in tariff now. Um, I know that some other California cities that have municipal utilities have feed-in tariffs. I believe Los Angeles has one. Um, and the reason we don't see it at the state level is it's not in the financial interest of the large utilities such as uh, Pacific Gas and Electric. Um, they make their money, the way that their regulations are set up, they make their money off building centralized infrastructure. They get a guaranteed 11% profit, um, profit off that. And so, which is, you know, a pretty good revenue. So anything that involves put decentralizing energy, putting uh, solar on rooftops, um, is not something that PG&E is going to make money off of, and they really have no incentive to um, to support those types of policies. Uh, so we really need to also, you know, it, it was one way to get around that is this more local control of your energy system, so that you can have you know energy policies that actually meet the values of local residents, and also just changing the the incentives um, at the uh, state and national level. Just briefly on Sonoma Clean Power, which is our, our public utility for power. It's, a, it's very new, it just got adopted, and there's actually the city I live in, Petaluma, hasn't done that yet, so we're trying to organize to get them to adopt this fall. And there's one other city in process, but I met with their program manager, and they're looking at some really amazing things. In addition to generating local green power and creating jobs, even the, you know, as it gets up, the educational programming they're thinking about that goes beyond power, that's around food and water and energy and building community. They have some really incredible ideas of what they want. And so that potential to have those local utilities who are from that community and care about it and care about the whole package um, is, you know, there's, there's a lot of amazing potential with it. Great. All right. So um, should we take one more burning question or should we go ahead and get into our breakout groups? All right, let's do our breakout groups then. And uh, so let's have toward, so, we, so the three topics are, um, oh, you know, actually, that's right. We're supposed to seed a couple of questions. Should we go ahead and do that still? We could go. Mm-hmm. Are you all ready to break out? Small group? Yeah, let's do that. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I encourage you to bring up with uh, the person you're breaking out the issue of how to work in networks and also funding, because those are a couple of juicy sort of, you know, topics that are... Are, are useful to talk about. Um, so toward the front here, we'll have a little circle of chairs um, of folks who are chatting with Jesse mm -hmm, on e eco-municipalities. So if this is a model that you want to, you're thinking about replicating or you want to learn more about, then chat with Jesse toward the front of the room here. Then, if you are interested in the daily acts model of really changing things from the grassroots up, and then also I will, or also um, tr or the transition model, because Trayton is on the board of Transition US. Um, they also say another thing Trayton didn't mention that he's good to hit up for information on is how do you capture the resource flows from government agencies such as the water agency where he gets a lot of his contracts from actually capture that for grassroots nonprofits that are doing change from the ground up. 
Um, so in the middle of the room, uh, Trayton will go hang out and uh, chat with you all in a, in a, in a group, uh, small group on that. And then I'll be in the back of the room for folks who want to talk about more of the ideas behind eco-governance. You know, what scale is appropriate and how is representation appropriate for that sort of thing. So I'll be in the back of the room. So again, to go over that quickly, Jesse with eco-municipalities toward the front of the room. Treat in the middle of the room with a daily acts model, and then I'll be in the back talking about sort of the, the theory and the big picture ideas of uh, eco-governance, the scale and the representation questions in the back. All right, we'll see you in small groups. <laughs>